Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. Awesome. So good. Uh, so great to be part of a church. Uh, one church in three locations, Port Perry, Bowmanville, and Ajax, celebrating Easter Sunday 2019 together. What a thrill. So, uh, so awesome to be here with you. And to those who are going to be watching or listening later on online, uh, happy Easter to you wherever you find yourself. A burglar broke into a house and was kind of rummaging around the house and, you know, looking for stuff to steal. It was kind of just quietly moving through parts of the house when suddenly he heard a voice that said, Jesus is watching. Well, the guy kind of froze. And he waited, you know, for the lights to go on for some, but, but nothing happened. And so he kind of went on and, you know, rummaging around a little bit more and digging for stuff. And then the voice came a second time, but just a little bit louder this time. Jesus is watching. Well, the guy's like starting to get a little bit freaked out now. He's like expecting people to just come in on him and, and, and you know, the gig to be up. And, and so, you know, he decides to keep rummaging around looking for other stuff to take. But he's kind of more aware now of his surroundings. And as he's rummaging around, a third time this voice comes to him, even louder, and says, Jesus is watching. And, and he's like, I think it's kind of coming from over there in the corner. And so very gingerly, because he's really freaked out by this, he goes over when in the corner he discovers a birdcage. So he like whips up the sheet off of the birdcage, and there's a parrot inside the birdcage. And he just, he laughs, and he says to the parrot, what's your name? The parrot says, my name's Moses. <laughs> he says, what kind of a person names a parrot Moses? The parrot says, the same person who names their Rottweiler Jesus. See, Easter is full of all kinds of shock and all kinds of surprises. And I think this morning, as we dive into the Scripture together, I think some of you are going to be surprised and some of you are going to be a little bit shocked like that burglar about what Easter is really all about. This season here at C4, we've been exploring what it means to say, give me Jesus, Jesus over everything else, Jesus first in our hearts, Jesus first in our minds, in our lives, and in our work and in all of our relationships. All of us want purpose. We all want meaning. We all want peace in the end. And it's here in this ongoing search that we started Holy Week last week. Last Sunday and then on Good Friday. And here at C4 we began looking at three people, three characters in the Passion episode of Jesus in the Scripture. Because in studying these people we learned so much about what Easter is all about. But we learned so much about ourselves as we studied these characters. Caiaphas, Pilate, and Barabbas. Now, a quick summary for all of those who were not able to be with us either on Friday or last Sunday. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. He was religious, he was educated, he was political, he was wise, he was cunning, he was crafty. And the story started with him. Judas had just betrayed Jesus, and the religious court was pulled together, it was convened, the Sanhedrin came together to go through this so-called trial of Jesus. And do you remember what Caiaphas said to Jesus? In Mark chapter 14 and verse 60, we have it recorded. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? 
Now, to the first century Jewish uh, listener or the first century Jewish audience, this would have had a lot of punch and would have packed a lot behind it because they understood that if anyone claimed to be or you called yourself the son of the blessed one, it was an ancient way of saying, like, I'm actually God. I'm one with God. I'm actually equal to God. In Mark 14, 62, Jesus said, I am what you have said is true. Jesus answers, I'm not just a good guy. I'm not just some prophet. I am the one that history has waited for, the promised one. This was not just an answer, actually, that Jesus was giving. This was more like a declaration that Jesus was giving. I am. I am was the ancient name of God, the the name that God revealed to Moses way back thousands of years before. And this name was reserved for God and for God alone. Well, Jesus is now claiming this name for himself. And things just erupt in the room. In Mark 14, 63 and 64, it says, The high priest, he tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asks. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. But the Jews couldn't carry out capital punishment. Because they were under Roman law. They were living in an occupied land. And so they needed to move the scene and take Jesus. If they wanted to get him crucified, if they actually wanted him to die, they needed to take him to the Roman authorities. We jump over to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So now we come to Pilate, the personal representative of Caesar, the king, who claimed to give peace and who claimed the title. Caesar claimed the title, the king of kings and the lord of gods, and even the title, the son of God. Now remember uh, a week ago when Pastor John preached on this, we found out so much about him from the Bible and also from history that this man, Pilate, how anti-Semitic he really was, how Roman he was right to the very core of his being, and how really this guy was a wolf. He was a predator. He was a native from Spain, a soldier that became famous for fighting in Germany. And many think that his wife was the daughter of the Emperor Augustus himself. Matthew 27, 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, king of the Jews has two meanings. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It doesn't carry as much weight to us. But to an Orthodox Jew, to be called the king of the kings, the king of the Jews, sorry, was claiming to be the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised one. And that's why they want to kill Jesus, because Jesus is making that claim. And for the Orthodox Jews, this is blasphemy. But the Romans don't really care about some religious theological dispute. To Roman ears, this is about treason and insurrection. Caesar is king and no one else. Caesar is the only king of kings and no one else can claim that title. Any person threatening the state has to be dealt with severely and right away. Are you the king of the Jewish people, Pilate asks. Well, Matthew 27, 12, you have said so, Jesus replied. Well, the conversation now takes another turn as we saw last week. 
Jesus stands quietly. The crowd awaits. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin think that they're in control and it's their agenda that's being pushed. And Pilate thinks that he is in control. And because he doesn't want another revolt, another riot on his hands, he, he tries a bit of a move uh, to give another option to see maybe where this day would end up, maybe in a different direction altogether than the one that's eventually hurtling towards. Matthew 27, 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Did you catch that? Jesus Barabbas is his name. It's awesome how, how Matthew records the guy's full name. And, and, and for years and years and years, I, I had never seen this. I had never caught this. Most of us with a church background only know him as Barabbas. But here Matthew tells us that his name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus is the Greek variant of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. And the literal meaning is God is salvation. So, so here, what's happening now in this scene is we have two Jesuses, two possible saviors, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. W what do you want? This is Pilate's question. Whom do you want? But even more than just the names, Barabbas is in jail and is awaiting execution because he's a well-known prisoner. And language really matters here. And the word that is used in the gospel accounts about Barabbas means violent, lawless man, bandit, or thief. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 7, Mark gives us a little bit more detail. He says, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So, so Barabbas is more than just some thief. He, yeah, he is a thief, and, and yes, he is a murderer, but he was part of a group that was against Rome. He was a, a freedom fighter for the Jews. He was a, a terrorist towards the Romans. He and his gang were like a, an unedited, dishonest, dangerous version of Robin Hood. And it gets even more interesting because if you know the Good Friday story at all, it says that Jesus is executed between two other people. There is one on his left and one on his right. And Matthew 27, 38 says it this way. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Again, the words really, really matter. Rebels. The same word used to describe Barabbas was used to describe these other two. These are co-rioters. They are co-conspirators with Barabbas. They were the same as Barabbas. They may even have hung out with Barabbas. They were part of the same insurrection that Barabbas was part of. And the cross that Jesus died on was likely the cross that Barabbas himself was supposed to die on. So Jesus, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, takes his place just like he takes our place. So which Jesus do they choose? Which Jesus do they want? Which Jesus would you want? Which one fulfills your needs, your hopes, your desires? Which one do you think can give you power, promotion, purpose, peace, attention, happiness, comfort, and meaning in life? Well, the story kind of ends here for Barabbas in Matthew 27, 21, and 22. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. 
And that's exactly what happened. And that's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus took Barabbas' place, and he took your place, and he took my place, and he died on the cross to bear our sin, our guilt, and our penalty. So it seems even Jesus, with all of his miracles and all of his love and his kindness, cannot overcome the powerful, the rich, the elite, and the super-connected. They held all the cards. Nothing changes again. Religion wins, power wins, violence wins, injustice wins. Barabbas goes free, Pilate washes his hands, and Caiaphas gets exactly what he wanted. So Jesus Barabbas is free, and he's on his way. Caiaphas, the religious leader, wins because this great threat to him, Jesus, is now dead. But fear-based living drives him to tie up just one final potential loose end. Rome and Jerusalem come together one last time to end this religious, political, and personal problem. We see it in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 to 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Like, uh, this is incredible. Like, think about it. It's just a couple of days before they are questioning Jesus, they're interrogating Jesus, and they're saying, are you the Christ? Like, we, we heard from the testimony of two guys, even though they weren't reliable, that you talked about knocking down the temple and building it in three days. And now, three days later, they have their theology exactly right. They knew and understood really well what Jesus was actually teaching. They knew that Jesus' claim was that he would die, and that he would rise again. So they've got to protect against this. Even if they don't believe in it, they have to protect against it. Verse 64, so give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This deception will be worse than the first. Are you kidding me? Like, these guys really know what's going on. They have understood Jesus' teaching full well. And even if they're like, oh, this Jesus, I don't believe him, and I don't believe that he's the Son of God, and I don't believe that he's going to rise again, we cannot take the chance that the disciples won't come and steal the body, and then they'll spread the story that his teaching is actually true. So we've got to protect against that. Verse 65. Take a guard then, Pilate said. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Pilate assigned some Roman military personnel to the high priest to end this whole situation, just to make sure once and for all that nothing funny was going to happen. They're going to guard the tomb where Jesus' body has been placed so that nobody, absolutely nobody, can mess with it. Well, the story gets really interesting now on that first Easter Sunday. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So here we have two of Jesus' close followers, two of the women who have been around Jesus a lot of his life and his ministry, and they're on the way to the tomb. Now, why on earth are they going to the tomb? Well, we have to go over to Mark chapter 16, to Mark's gospel in verse 1 to, to give us a little bit more detail. It says there, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Oh, that's it. Jesus was dead. They loved him, but they had no Christian hope. 
The very act of buying spices shows that they did not accept nor expect that Jesus would be physically resurrected from the dead because they're going to do what is required of a dead body. They come in love, and they come in piety, and their coming, though honorable, is misguided. Pilate won. The other Jesus is free, and Caiaphas is still in charge. The rock is too big. The soldiers are still there, and the Roman seal remains unbroken. Mark 16, 2 and 3. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away for us at the entrance of the tomb? Reality starts to set in as they're walking out to the tomb. Like they have love and grief and it's all mixed up and they just, they haven't been thinking super clearly and they've actually overlooked some of the practical details like there is a giant stone covering the entrance to the tomb. We are two or three women. Who will roll the stone away for us? Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. This stone was likely between two and four tons in weight. And the guards who were assigned to watch the grave were trained soldiers, special forces of their times. These are not like mall cops. So can you imagine when the women get there and the scene that they're about to encounter, the shock and the awe and the wonder? Famed uh, preacher in the States, Chuck Swindoll, got it right when he said this. Imagine that you just buried your spouse, your friend, your child last week. All the pain, all the trauma. And you decided to come back to talk, to reflect, to lay some flowers and when you arrive, there's dirt everywhere. The coffin is lying open beside the hole, and the body is missing. Shock, anger, horror. We would all be asking, where, why, how, when? Well, what happened? Well, Matthew tells us that just before the women arrived, the best that institutional power could bring to the table, the best that religion could bring, the strongest political and military might, the worst backroom scapegoating and injustice is thrown to the side because heaven steps in to the scene. See, all of this plotting, all of this scheming, all of these extra measures to ensure that nothing was going to happen to perpetuate the story of Jesus of Nazareth, it all gets blocked to the side because suddenly heaven steps in. Matthew 28, 2 to 4, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. Imagine the scene. There are likely four guards that are on duty at this particular time, and they're, they're just doing their guarding thing, and it's first light. It's, you know, the break of dawn on the third day, and suddenly they're aware of something or someone above them, and it gets bright, and then it begins to get brighter and brighter, and then there's like flashes of lightning, but it's actually not a thunderstorm, and then the light is so bright that it's blinding, and then there's a presence that is so awesome and so holy, and it's just so near and so overcoming that they fall down like dead men. They're just so overcome. These hardened soldiers that had killed and faced death are now reduced to frightened children. Couldn't run. They couldn't hide. They certainly couldn't fight this. 
And there he was, powerful, tall, bright, looking human and yet not human. The seal of Rome has been broken. The plotting of the religious community has been removed. The stone becomes a seat for the angel to sit on. Don't you love that? The soldiers went down. They fell down. And every single effort to contain Jesus, to overcome Jesus, could not contain him. Even death itself could not contain Jesus because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I love what happens next. The angel completely ignores the power brokers, the soldiers in the scene. And the angel speaks to the women. Verses 5 and 6. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Jesus, which Jesus are you looking for? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, Jesus who was crucified? Oh, he's not here. Step inside. Come on. Come on in. Take a look. Have a look around. He's not here. The angel is like, it, it, this is an awesome scene because they are bewildered. They are shocked because they've gone to prepare the body, but he's not there anymore. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So this Jesus has risen from the dead. This is not a spiritual resurrection like some ghost. This is no reanimation. This is not a zombie-like state. No, this is physical, bodily resurrection come back from the dead. Jesus was a corpse. Jesus is no longer a corpse. Jesus was dead. He is no longer dead. Jesus is alive. And this, by the way, is not the kind of news, and these are not the kind of people, that if you were going to start and birth a new movement in the first century, this is not how you would have gone about it. Pastor John has taught us on this several times, and I've so appreciated the teaching on it. And for some of you, might find it initially hard to swallow because it's a whole different culture than what we're used to. But in that time and in that culture, you would never use women to be the first-hand witnesses to start a revolutionary new movement because women's testimony was severely discounted legally, morally, religiously. And yet God chooses to bring the good news of Jesus' resurrection first to the least powerful people in the community. I love what N.T. Wright wrote. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was no. of scientific history. Back to Matthew's account, verses 8 and the beginning of 9. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. When suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said. <laughs> greetings. <laughs> Look, there's so much. But greetings is what the Lord said. And it literally is, hello, what's up? Good to see you again. It's so like our Lord, right? 
It's so like our Lord. But then this happens, second part of verse nine. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Like if ever Jesus needed to redirect them theologically, now would be the time. If ever Jesus wanted to point out that he really wasn't God, now would be the time to do that. But instead, he meets the women's actions with approval. And look at this. He even accepts their worship. This is absolutely wrong unless he truly is God himself. Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. So the women run in one direction and they meet Jesus and then they keep running towards the disciples. But another group runs back to the world run by Caiaphas, Pilate, and Barabbas. I I love this scene. Like I imagine it in my mind's eye. Here's the tomb and and the soldiers are just starting to come back from like being like dead men because they've been like bonk, they're out because of this angel. And the women are running one way to tell the disciples and they meet Jesus. So they're running towards Jesus and these soldiers, they're running the complete opposite way. They're running back to everything they know. And this is an incredible metaphor for us today because we're all running. We're all running. The direction we're running is really important. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them you were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Like, really? Really? Like, these are Roman soldiers. (laughs) These are guards guarding this tomb. They were trained soldiers. They were experts in killing. And historians tell us there were typically four in a guard, and there might have even been more at the guarding the tomb of Jesus. One would keep watch in two-hour shifts, and the others would kind of rest, not go to sleep, because if they fell asleep on the job and something happened, they would go through the penalty of death for that. So they take their jobs pretty seriously. And they're supposed to report that, yeah, these Galilean fishermen came, and they... Stole the body because we were kind of having a nap. I hope they enjoyed the money. Well, the women make it back, and in John's gospel, it says that Peter and John ran to the tomb to see if this was too good to be true, if this really happened. In John chapter 20, verses 5 to 7, John bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Saw in Greek means to discern, to consider. And the word there is where we get our word theater from. Peter took a long, good, careful, analytical, investigative look into the tomb. The mystery is being probed. Is this fake news or is this real news? And really, honestly, if someone had taken the body 
They would have taken everything, or at least they would have unwrapped the body in such a hurry that it would have been in a mess. But we know that the grave clothes were there, and we know that the scripture account says that they were there, and they were orderly. See, this was not some hurried snatch and grab that happened with the body of Jesus, because no one grabbed the body of Jesus. He came back to life again. He was risen from the dead. So just when it seems that nothing will change, the powerful win, it is the most powerless that find out where meaning, rest, and purpose really are. They didn't have access to money, power, or backroom dealings, but that's not where you find rest. It all gets swept aside by a greater, more holy, more loving power. So what, Jesus, do you want? What savior do you want? The answer, your response, is seen in which way you turn. It is seen in the direction that you find yourself running in. Will you be like the women and Peter and John running towards and longing for an encounter with the risen Jesus? Or will you be like the soldiers running back to the old forms of power and trust, running back to the world of Pilate and Barabbas and Caiaphas? Notice that both groups were actually filled with fear, but the end points are drastically different. Many, unfortunately, will run back with the soldiers. Many of us will say, oh, I'm not like Pilate or Barabbas or Caiaphas, but look at what they do and look at what they represent and, and let's at least take an honest look at our own lives Let's look and see if they don't show up in our own story. Caiaphas, God likes me because of what I do and what I know. I'm moral, but yes, I compromise, but everybody does it once in a while. Religion says that God likes me because of what I do, what I know, and how I act. I am saved by my actions. If I'm good enough, if I'm faithful enough, if I'm right enough, God actually loves me because of me. Or do we see Pilate showing up in our lives? The self-made person, trusting one's life through political power, might, and conquest, family connections, violence, intimidation, fear-based living, control. I'll make my own future. I'm in charge. Get out of my way. No one is going to stand in my way. Or do we see Barabbas show up in our lives? A life of rebellion, a life of violence, a life of fighting the system constantly, using violence to actually overcome violence. My life choices are justified because I'm not as bad as the one that I'm actually fighting. And what does Jesus of Nazareth offer us? And why would we ever want to put our hope and our trust in Jesus and not anyone or anything else? Because Jesus can actually give us what we all really want and we all really are longing for. Purpose, meaning, identity, freedom, and rest. He takes our place like he did Jesus Barabbas on the cross and he deals with our messes and he comes back from the dead. Caiaphas, Jesus Barabbas, Pilate, even the soldiers, they're all dead and gone. But Jesus of Nazareth, he's not dead and gone. He is alive. He is in this room right now. And he comes and he offers purpose and meaning and hope and freedom and identity. And he calls it rest for our souls. 
rest for our souls. Long before these events, in some of his teaching in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, he said these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The yoke is, of course, the key phrase to understand what Jesus means in this teaching. Jesus did not say, come to me and I will remove all of the yokes. A a yoke is what an animal would wear around it to help it uh, drag its burden or to do the work that the animal needed to do. It was placed over the animal's shoulders. And Jesus promises rest for the deepest parts of us. But he requires us to take his yoke upon us. He offers to exchange the yoke that we are already wearing for his yoke. And if we don't accept his offer, we will, be, we will have uh, attached to us the yoke that we were born with, the yoke to sin, to lost dreams, to broken relationships, to dead religion, and to lies. See, we always serve someone or something. And the choice isn't whether or not to live unyoked or yoked. We are all yoked. But the choice that we get to make is which yoke, whose yoke we place on our own shoulders. Jesus promises purpose and meaning and peace in an ongoing permanent way. In Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 13 it says this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that there are people here in this room who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe something in what I have said today, in the reading of the verses, something as we've unpacked the story of Jesus and what Easter really is all about, that something new and fresh has come to light in your mind and in your heart, and something God has spoken to you suddenly makes sense where before it never made sense. I want to invite you to exchange the yoke that you're carrying right now for the yoke of Jesus. I want to lead you in a very simple prayer that thousands upon thousands upon millions upon billions of people have prayed. And so I would invite us all to bow our heads and close our eyes because this is a pretty somber, serious, reverend, holy moment for some people. And I'm going to pray this out loud and If God has been speaking to you for the first time in a long time or for the first time ever, and you know he's calling you, would you just repeat this quietly? I'll go fairly slowly just so you can keep up. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead. As best as I know how, I turn from running my own life. And now I ask you to run it and to become my Savior and my Lord.
I invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I trust you and I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, maybe you came with someone, I would just really encourage you to tell someone. After the service is over in just a few minutes, there are going to be some prayer people down here. It would be a great opportunity for you to come and just share with those prayer people and have them encourage you with some next steps. But it's a significant, significant decision that you have made to follow Jesus. And your faith may be so small right now, and you may feel like you know so little, but it's not about how much you know, it's about who you know. As for the rest of us who are followers in Jesus Christ, hear these truthful, hopeful, never going to change words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the body matters, proves that God is not done with you, proves our bodies will last forever. Your body and my body is stamped for resurrection is part of God's plan and work to make all things right. We don't confess the immortality only of the soul. We confess foreverness of the whole person. And so we cry, cry out with all hope and with all confidence and with all faith, the old confession in the Apostles' Creed that says, yes, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen? Amen. 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 N.T. Wright got it perfect. So simply, he said this, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. And you matter. You matter so much to God. And so let's stand together and let's worship and let's celebrate this risen Savior who was dead and is now alive. Let's, let's raise the roof in this place because he is risen. Not bad. Let's celebrate together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.